Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dindi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conditions conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Aaron Orion Abbott-Haynes. Erin is a childhood cancer survivor and mother to a childhood cancer survivor of a non-genetic cancer with a master's of divinity, and she is also trained in many other healing modalities. Erin is a guide counselor and a coach for people looking to create alignment and build resiliency through the exploration and healing of self and soul. Erin teaches therapeutic art forms, genetic hygiene, and practices that support sustainable thriving in a world in crisis. She also specializes in supporting families who are neurodiverse, gender diverse, disabled, and medically complex. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It is my pleasure. As I just mentioned in your bio, Erin, you are a childhood cancer survivor yourself. Can you please tell us a little bit more about your journey and how that has impacted your adult life? Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia at age 13 in 1995. And I was treated for over two years of chemotherapy, high-dose chemotherapy treatments at the time. And at the time, we believed that when childhood cancer treatment was over, it was over. 
and you could go back to a normal life. And in the years following, I realized that is absolutely not the case. And so has the medical community has really begun to understand that's not the reality for childhood cancer survivors. So even before I was complete with treatment, I was diagnosed with a late effect of my treatment called avascular necrosis. And it was an impact on my major joints of my body and most specifically on my ankles. So the bones in my ankles died, collapsed, broke apart, and there was no treatment for it. For years following, I was dealing with chronic pain and I was dealing with multiple different mobility challenges and issues. And there was a lot that came of that. But the other thing that we realized over time is that there are also multiple other side effects that happen. I can talk more about that as we go through this conversation. But for about 20 years after my treatment, I really focused on supporting my own body for things like my ankle collapse and the mobility challenges I was having and the pain that I was having, but also really looked at advocacy and awareness building and fundraising and how could I support other families who are going through a similar thing so that they wouldn't experience what I experienced. And I did that for about 20 years. I also did my master's of divinity and partly that was to learn how to support families better in medical crisis. I did spiritual care and counseling and then I did an internship as a chaplain at a very busy hospital in Philadelphia and learned more and more about how to support families through medical crisis in a professional way. Then I had the miracle experience of being able to have children, which was not a clear thing, whether or not that would be possible for me. In fact, in going, trying to plan to have children, I went to multiple doctors and said, is there any chance at all that my children will have this cancer, will have cancer, any kind of cancer? And I heard over and over again from many doctors, there's no possible chance. This is not a thing. This does not happen. Don't worry about it. Go ahead and have kids. Get on with your life. Had two beautiful children. And 21 years after my own diagnosis, my four and a half year old son was diagnosed with the exact same cancer. It was exactly identical to the cellular level because he was diagnosed and treated at the same hospital that I was diagnosed and treated at 21 years earlier. We still had my blood samples on file. So they compared my original blood samples with his original blood samples, and they were identical, but there were no genetic markers. So this is something that has never happened before. This was not a genetically caused cancer. It was, quote unquote, a fluke. And so as far as they know, this hasn't happened anywhere in the world. So in the following years, it's been six or seven years since he was diagnosed and treated. And in the following years, I supported him and my own family through childhood cancer take two as a parent this time. It has been a world that I have had as a part of my reality for all my life since the age of 13. And it has looked different ways as time has gone on. Thank you so much for sharing that, Erin. That's a very important question that people may not think to ask is, if I had childhood cancer, is it possible that my children could have that? I'm very happy that you were able to have children. That's a blessing. And I can really see how you having childhood cancer informed the work that you're doing today. Thank you for the work that you do, because we just don't hear enough about childhood cancer. It's a world that there isn't a lot of conversation about, even though it's actually more common than people realize. It is the number one disease reason for mortality in children across the world, and it's constantly rising. 
on the incidences of childhood cancer. And we don't talk about it. It's a very difficult subject for a lot of people. It's a very scary subject for a lot of people. And so there isn't a lot of conversation about it, which I really feel passionately about shifting if I can in my lifetime. Erin, I want to touch on a prior conversation that we had, and you shared that you navigated living with the latent effects of treatment before the medical community knew about that. Please tell us more and what latent effects you personally experienced. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is really important, just to name really clearly, and you basically said this in your question, but for the listeners, I want to say I have late effects. And often people talk about late effects of cancer, but the truth is that it's late effects of chemotherapy. It's late effects of the treatment. My own experience of cancer was fascinating because I really was one of the first generations of childhood cancer survivors. There was quite a massive increase in survivorship right around the time that I went through treatment a little bit before, but I'm on the later end of that generation. And up until that point, there were really no effective treatments for childhood cancer. So once they learned how to treat childhood cancer, there was this feeling of, oh, thank goodness, we've treated the cancer, the kids can get back to their normal lives, and they can go ahead and get on with it. And so when I finished treatment, my doctor said, don't worry about it. All you need is a, a blood test every year. And that's it. And he was very wrong. And my experience of being one of the first generations of survivors is to continue to show and demonstrate what those late effects look like. Like I mentioned, I have avascular necrosis. I had it through multiple joints in my body. It has turned partially into osteonecrosis and osteoporosis as time has gone on. But that caused like my ankle joints to break apart, break down, caused massive mobility issues. The year before my son was diagnosed, I was probably a couple of weeks out of or maybe months out of being wheelchair bound forever. When I found a magical surgeon who said, if you let me try to do experimental surgeries that have never done been done before on a human... I might be able to save your ability to walk. At the time, I didn't have any options. And so I said, absolutely do what you need. She did three surgeries that included 13 different procedures. I ended up with 16 screws and three plates in my ankles. And they reformed one ankle completely. I was on four months of bed rest and relearned to walk one month before my own son was diagnosed. So I have this amazing ability now to walk and it was perfect timing in so many ways. It's been an amazing ability. I realized when I relearned to walk, it was the first time I had walked without pain since I was 12 years old. So that's just one side effect. The other thing to realize is that childhood cancer treatments, the side effects show up, the late effects, they're called late effects because they show up late. They can show up 30 to 40 years down the road. So we track for late effects now 30, 40, 50 years down the road after treatment has happened. And it causes things like secondary cancers, organ failures, functioning issues, basic pain, lots of different ways that it can look. So I'm tracked for heart function. And then there are multiple tests that I've gone through that people my age shouldn't be going through just to see how things are going. There are digestive issues. There are so many, there are so many that I've tracked mm. for. I've tracked yeah. for bone issues. I have some hearing loss. I also have, and one of the other things that's really extremely common and not talked about 
the most common side effect or late effect of treatment is mental health impact. Mm -hmm. Depression, anxiety, and PTSD are extreme, and CPTSD are extremely common side effects and not talked about and not treated and not supported during treatment. So I also live with those. And uh, it's been an interesting challenge. The other thing is because we're constantly tracking, I am followed by a late effects clinic. So it actually came right. into being one year before my own son was diagnosed and I was celebrated in my car. I remember getting the phone call that they had opened and I cried and celebrated because I had been lobbying for a clinic like this for a very long time. And they now track childhood cancer, adult childhood cancer survivors for the multiple different things that can happen on a yearly basis. The other thing I'm tracked for currently that's very active is it appears that I have a much higher risk of breast cancer, according to my treatment. I'm in conversation with my surgeons about the potential of having a preventative double mastectomy in the coming years or in the next year or two. And that's a very high likelihood that will just happen given my risk profile. That's not a very commonly understood side effect, especially for someone who wasn't treated with radiation. But the studies that are coming out now are showing that even chemotherapy treatments to childhood cancer survivors raises the risk level so much so that there is a very good reason to consider double mastectomy as a pretty good choice for extending potential lifetime <laughs> available. I think the other thing to just mention is like each treatment has a different profile of long-term side effects. So each cancer, these are just my profile based on my treatments, mm -hmm. independent on different childhood cancers, the treatments look different and so do the late effects, but doesn't change the fact that there are countless late effects that people deal with for the rest of their lives. Wow, that is a lot, Erin. And I appreciate you so much for sharing that in depth because it's really important, especially when parents make those decisions for the type of care and treatment that they're going to get. Those are different things that you definitely want to take into consideration. You touched on mental health. One thing that was challenging for me was getting the treatment, like you said, going through all of that, and then after having things come up that impact your health. How did you deal with that? When things come up and you have a new health issue, how does that affect you? Such a good question. It's, it's a challenge. It's a constant challenge to navigate how to build a full life where you are thriving, while also knowing that there are multiple things that could pull you back into that medical world. And sometimes both being a part of that medical world, one foot in the medical world and one foot in that thriving life that you're creating. And I think that one, it has changed over time, dependent on where I've been in my life. When before my own son was diagnosed, I did a lot of work on healing my PTSD and healing my anxiety, healing my depression, and really trying to support myself so that when those things came up, I was more resilient in myself to respond from a place of groundedness rather than trauma. And because it's very often that it can cause an emotional flashback, even if it's not causing physical flashbacks, emotional flashbacks are real and very intense things to navigate. So having people in my life who were able to support me knowing that appointments could be triggering. So I had someone who said, you're not going to have to do appointments by yourself anymore. That's not always the case, but having someone who can come to appointments with you, having someone who could be an advocate who can understand will help support you when those things come up to stay in the present moment rather than going back to that experience of the first time the rug was pulled out from under you in that way. Yeah, so yeah. true. 
Erin, you also mentioned there is a clinic that opened in your area that, you know, is specifically for survivors and late effects. Please tell us more about that, because just yesterday I was saying that there needs to be a model of care for people who have went through cancer treatment. There needs to be post-care. Tell us more about this clinic. I'm just really happy to hear this. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that these clinics, they exist in multiple areas across the States and Canada and a few other, I'm sure there are other locations in the world. My experience of them so far is that they're very much in their rudimentary phase. What they're here to do is to track physical side effects, long-term and provide very beginning stages of support of needs that might come up. My dream would be that these places would also provide things like mental health counseling supports and supports with things like, this is actually something that the clinic that I, that I attend does is they run clinics every few months to help people fill out disability forms, if that should be the case, or how to navigate different aspects of navigating the world as someone with disabilities, because that is so often the experience of someone who's been through high intensity treatments is that they come out of it and they actually do have disabilities that they then have to learn how to live with and thrive with. So those things are in their rudimentary phase. But I think the truth is that they're really not, they're still massively overstretched with the amount of need. So when this clinic opened, they opened their doors to every survivor in the province that I live in of childhood cancer up until that point, which means that there is one oncologist on staff. There are two social workers on staff. There are two nurses, I think. It's a small clinic. It's not a big one. So the amount of support that they can offer is quite limited. But as understanding grows, as the need grows, as funding grows, we can actually expand those supports. At this point, I think that just having the doors open is a huge win, but there's a lot more that could be done. I think that from a holistic point of view, there's a lot more that could be done to support the whole self. Thank you. That's my dream anyway. Yeah. I'm dreaming with you on that one because that is so important. And like I said, just yesterday, I was saying there needs to be specific care for survivors and post-treatment care because a lot of people, these things come up after they finish treatment. They don't see their doctor as often. They don't know if they should see their oncologist or their primary care physician. So there's just so many barriers to getting that care into survivorship. And I think, as you mentioned, a clinic like this is a step in the right direction. Absolutely. It's the first step in a long road, I think, <laughs> but it's the right step. Erin, please tell us what the differences are between pediatric cancer treatments and adult cancer treatments. Yeah. So this is a really good question because I think that this is something that a lot of people don't realize until you're in the pediatric world, in the pediatric cancer world. And once you're in it, you can never forget it. So there are about over 200 types of pediatric cancer, and there are only four drugs that are developed specifically for pediatric cancer, only four in the world for over 200 types of pediatric cancer. And you consider that many of the pediatric cancers use 10, 15 drugs in the course of treatment or more. And there are only four pediatric drugs that are created that are specific to child bodies, the ways child's children respond to treatment, the way children's uh, cancers grow. So most kids, the very huge majority of children are treated with adult chemotherapy 
agents, adult drugs at levels that are not approved for adult bodies. So kids' cancers, because they grow differently, because kids' bodies are growing, kids' cancers grow differently, often more aggressively than adult cancers do. So they take those adult chemotherapy agents and they administer them at more frequent doses and higher amounts than are approved for adult bodies. So these are actually all off-label uses, right? Because they're not approved for children and they're being offered at higher doses than any adult would ever be able to be given and for longer periods of time. So not only more frequently, but a child undergoing leukemia treatments undergoes over two years of treatments. And that includes daily chemotherapy, as well as chemotherapy that's intravenous in the spine intrathecally, it's orally, and there are multiple different effects that happen over that time because we're so aggressive with the treatment of child cancer. The other thing that is worth mentioning is that because the goal was to help kids survive, they started out by giving childhood cancer treatments at the highest dose that a child could survive. So they basically gave it at the absolute highest amount, and then they dialed it back very small amounts over the years to try and find what's the right amount to give a child. They still give very high doses, but over time, they've dialed it back just a littlest bit. And I think the other thing that I need to name in this moment is around the numbers for childhood cancer, because this is a place where a lot of the public understanding is not a full understanding. When you look at the numbers for survivorship of childhood cancer, they now say we have 90% survival rates or 80% survival rates of childhood cancer. And there's a celebration around that. And there is a celebration around that. In the 1960s, that number was in 10 or 15%. So that's a huge increase. What people don't understand is that survival rate is only actually for five years post-diagnosis. So this child has survived for five years. Now in an adult, adding five years on, if you get diagnosed at 70, as sad as it is, five years is a nice amount to add on to your lifespan. I'm not trying to say it's enough time in any way, shape or form, but it's different than if a child is diagnosed at seven and lives for five years, they're only 13. And so when we look at those numbers, they're very misleading because what it can mean is that a child can be diagnosed and survive for five years, be treated, survive for five years. They can relapse in the sixth year and die from that relapse. And they're still considered a survivor. They're still counted in that percentage. So there's a, a misconception of how supportive childhood cancer treatments are because there's a desperation to show that there are successes. And that means that it's much harder for us to get the support that we need to increase the funding. And I know this is a little bit off topic, but it's worth naming childhood cancer treatments are only given 4% of national funding every mm -hmm. year. And to put that in context, prostate cancer receives 4% of national funding. Childhood cancer over 200 different types of cancer receives the same amount as prostate cancer funding. I'm glad prostate cancer has the funding it has, but when you're trying to fund 200 different types of cancer research and treatment with the same amount that one cancer treatment and research is getting, you're not going to have the same level of care and support and treatment, and you are going to have bigger effects down the line of how those treatments impact life, the lives that come afterwards. 
And I think that's what we're seeing with childhood cancer and continue to see, even though a lot of the medical system would really like us to believe that it's highly effective, it is highly effective for at least five years. And that's a win. I think we could do better. I agree, Erin. And I'm so happy that you went into the funding portion of it because I had heard the same thing. I was going to ask you to elaborate on that. So thank you so much for doing that. To piggyback off of that, that is very important. And it really shows in numbers how much support is needed in the area of childhood cancer, and then also funding the development of more research and developing more drugs that are better for children. What do you recommend that people do? Are there things that everyday people can do to try to help drive up that funding? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You'll probably know one of the really interesting things that I have seen over the last, it's been almost 30 years that I've been in the childhood cancer world, is there are a lot of organizations that are there for childhood cancer. There's so many nonprofits that are out there trying to support childhood cancer because so many people, once they've set foot in this world, realize how desperate the need is and how much need there is. So there are nonprofits we can support and giving to those nonprofits who are supporting childhood cancer. Some of that money does go to research. Some of those nonprofits do fund new research bodies. A lot of the nonprofits out there are also trying to support the massive impacts that childhood cancer has on the family because they are extensive and long-term. So any place where you can see that opportunity, I say jump on it. But the other thing is to remember that this is something that only changes with people's awareness and it only changes with people deciding to care about it. And one of the challenging things that I think that I found is that childhood cancer is a difficult topic. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to imagine what this world is like. And unfortunately, what that means is that, especially with childhood cancer rates on the rise, so many people are taken unawares when they find themselves in that world or they find loved ones in that world and they realize how desperate the need is, but they haven't necessarily had reason to notice before. So where there is opportunity to raise awareness, where there's opportunity to amplify voices, to talk about it, to bring people into the conversation, I think those pieces are so important because until we have a bigger conversation collectively about childhood cancer and the impact this is having on families across the world, we're not going to see a raise of money from our governmental bodies that support this national research until this becomes a thing that people are asking for and paying attention to. So that's part of how we can support that. Thank you, Erin. So in other words, talk to your state legislators, get this in front of them, make sure that they're aware of these statistics and just keep showing up in those spaces around people who have the ability to have an impact on those needs and make those decisions to get that needed funding. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have people who are talking about childhood cancer in your world, try to amplify their voices because there's a lot of compassion fatigue that happens over time. And so people over time stop talking about it. So the more you can amplify their voices or at least let them know that you're hearing them, the more that supports them in continuing to share about what they're going through or what they've experienced. Thank you so much for talking about it and anything that I can do to help amplify your voice and your experience and your son's experience. I'm happy to do that. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here. This is huge for me. So thank you to be able to share about it. Yeah, My pleasure. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned first-generation childhood cancer survivors. 
What does that mean? And what has that meant for your life? Really, you've been sharing throughout this conversation what it has meant for your life. But can you please just tell us a little bit more about what it means to be part of the first generation of childhood survivors? Yeah. I think it's been a really interesting experience because when I first was a survivor, I didn't realize I was part of the first generation of survivors. And so over time, it has been this learning experience of understanding that my voice does matter and my experience does matter because this is part of how we understand what's happening for kids who are coming now, my son's generation generations to come. And it's been really an interesting experience, a challenging experience often to try and help medical professionals and the public understand what the experience is like, because so much of what I have experienced and what survivors experience in general is invisible. And so really understanding, and I've started to talk about this to make it clearer, is like childhood cancer is a chronic diagnosis because the disease itself is acute, but the treatment causes a chronic diagnosis and the treatment itself causes chronic patients. And the more the medical community can understand that, the more seriously we can be taken. But they only understand that and take us seriously over time and over enough of us showing up to say this is our experience. And that's been a really interesting thing for me as a first-generation survivor to hear back multiple times over. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard this to doctors saying, this may be your experience, but until more people have this experience, we aren't going to do anything about it. We aren't going to change the things that we're doing. We can't fix it. We can't help you. This is clearly just a you problem. Until they come back later and say, actually, I may have made a mistake. It's not just a you problem. This is a problem that is clearly caused by this treatment that you had. And that has been over and over again throughout my lifetime of saying, this is my current experience and being told this is something that is only unique to you, only something that you are dealing with, only to find out that actually it's widespread. And it's only after multiple people come forward and multiple people say, I'm dealing with this issue, that they begin to understand that this is an impact that has been created by the treatment or the lack of follow-up or whatever it is. Again, you just made a great point about talking about what you're going through, the experience that you've had, the side effects that you've had. Even though it's uncomfortable, the more you talk about it, you'll start to find that number one, you're not alone. You'll find other people and together your voices can raise this to the top and you can come together in that way. Absolutely. And it has been really powerful too, as I've gotten into the community more and more over the many years, to have a small network of survivors who are also going through a similar thing, because it is a deeply isolating experience to have this experience that happens in childhood, that we then are still continuing to feel the repercussions of 30, 40 years later. A lot of people, especially in the world where we talk about healing your inner child wounds, healing from your childhood, all of these things, a lot of people have this feeling of at some point you should be able to get over what happened to you in your childhood. And it's not actually the way it works with childhood cancer. You can heal a lot of the emotional wounds. You can work with a lot of those things, but you can still turn a corner one day and find that there's a side effect that you didn't see coming that was caused by these childhood experiences that now you're navigating all over again. So having a community that understands what that's like and not trying to encourage you to quote unquote, get over your childhood experience is a supportive and helpful thing. And I think that we find that across all cancer experiences, potentially people who want you to get over it, who are outside of the community to those people who've been in it and understand that 
it's not that simple. It's never that simple. Excellent points, Erin. It's not that simple and it simply isn't over when the treatment stops. So definitely not. Great, great points. Thank you. You've said that pediatric cancer happens to a family as a mother of a child who has had cancer. Can you say more about what that means? Absolutely. I think that this is a really important point. And it's something that the medical community is slowly beginning to understand. But when a child is diagnosed with cancer, it's different than when an adult is diagnosed with cancer. Because when an adult is diagnosed with cancer, they're the ones in the driver's seat. They're the ones who are responsible for getting themselves to treatment. Maybe they have someone who supports them getting there, but they're responsible for getting there. They're the ones who make the decisions for themselves. All of those things are on that person, which is a unique challenge in itself. I'm not trying to say that's easier, but in a childhood cancer experience, everybody in the family's life shifts. Often parents have to quit work. They become a nurse overnight. You actually, as a parent, are in a very unique experience where you you cannot actually choose your child's treatment. That's not an option that's given. So a lot of adults have this experience of, I get to choose what's right for me and say no to things that are not right for me. Adults aren't given that option for their children because if you say no to the treatments that are suggested or required you face losing your children to the social work system. And they will take your children away and they will give your child that treatment. So there is a lot of impacts that are just so widespread. There are 80% of childhood cancer families end up filing for bankruptcy. 90% of childhood cancer families often face marriage breakdowns over this experience because the impact is so long-term and so extensive and there isn't support for the family itself. So there's often a lot of support focused in on the patient, but the parents and the siblings are also just as in it. The siblings are often there for treatment. And if they're not there for treatments, then they're not with their parent and their parent is gone for sometimes months at a time. If a child is in the hospital and not able to leave the hospital, a parent can be gone for months in a sibling's life. And that's a huge impact long-term. It impacts the sibling relationships. And then there's the picking up the pieces when it's all done and trying to build a life coming back from often massive financial breakdown and crisis, now living with a child who likely has some level of disabilities and health challenges long-term. And most times, one of the other things that's not talked about, but is definitely a major issue is that there are more incidences of PTSD in parents than there are in patients in childhood cancer because we are trained to be hypervigilant against any signs of potential infections or anything else that could potentially be a crisis in our child's treatment. So parents come out of this with PTSD, but no support and no acknowledgement. Many times parents don't even know that PTSD is a possibility for them to experience coming out of this. So now they're trying to rebuild a life that is in this crisis ruined state with these major issues that are impacting their ability to show up. And there's very little support and understanding around that. And that can have generational impact. And I've seen it in my own personal family, like my the family I grew up in. And now I see it in the family that I currently have with my own children. So it's one of those things that we really need to understand, even when we talk about a whole family treatment It's not just about allowing a patient, a sibling to come with you to the treatment, which is 
a change since I was yeah. a kid and is now something that at least when COVID is not as much of a thing, is a thing that is allowed. And so families have a more whole family focus, but it's not just including the family. It's also how do we support the family? How do we treat the family for their impacts of this experience? We're not just treating cancer, we're treating the impact of the experience of cancer. And there has to be some more support around that if we're going to actually support families to thrive after these kinds of experiences. So many different factors. Thank you for shedding light on everything that you shared with us today. One thing I was thinking about is how did you talk to your child about what was happening? That's such a good question. This is actually something that I help support other parents to navigate as well. It depends on the age. With my kiddo, he was four and a half. And at the time, he was very into Lego. So we used Lego and we used Lego characters and we talked about how what was happening in his blood and we talked about what was happening how the chemo would affect the blood so we would take lego blocks and show him this is a normal cell and have a four dot lego block and this is what happens when you have leukemia and show him what it looks like differently how the cells look different and what can happen to a body system when those things happen then we would come in with our little Lego fighters. And we'd say, and these are the chemo drugs. And this is what we're going to do when we're giving you these medicines, they're fighting cells. And this is how they're changing things. It was really important for us to give full information, but to do it in a way that was accessible. So we started out there. And the truth is that when you have a child who is treated for cancer, they're no longer functioning at a level that a normal child is. They're dealing with issues that children don't have to deal with most of the time. So we went from that kind of conversation and very quickly within at least probably less time than a year, we were having real conversations of, buddy, I'm so sorry that you're having to get this drug, but this is the drug. This is how it works. This is some of the ways that it affects the body. And we're really sorry that it hurts so much and you don't have a choice. And here's what it's going to do to your body. And here are some of the ways that we can support you and help you. And you can tell us what you need because yes, he's only five and a half, but he's also experiencing something that a lot of adults never experience. So if we continue to act like he needs to be shielded from this information, he loses the ability to advocate for what he actually needs. Certain things like at the very beginning of the treatment, we said things, you know, doctors are going to want to talk to us, to mommy and daddy. And if you want them to talk to us in the hallway, so you don't have to hear the information, you just let us know. So he would say, yeah, no, I don't want them to talk about it in front of me. A year later, he didn't care. He had gotten over that. It was old news by then. But at the very beginning, all of our medical discussions happened in the hallway because it was too much. It was overwhelming for him. And we were giving the information in a way that he could navigate it. But we were never hiding things from him. We were never lying to him. We were never trying to pretend it wasn't as hard as it was. We would say we knew how hard it was, and then we would help him through his feeling because there's no support for him. He needs to understand that he can show up with his full experience and he can ask any questions that he needs to and that he gets to have some level of say because there's a lot of say that doesn't happen for a kid. So giving them power where they could have it was really important for us. That included going as far as saying, you know, if you're not going to take your chemotherapy drugs, we're going to have to put a tube down your throat. 
and you're going to have to get a GI a tube that goes through your nose and into your throat and you're going to have to get your medicines that way. It was a very difficult conversation to have. He did not like it and he ultimately said, I want that instead. And he tried it and he hated it and it was terrible. And he went back and he took his medicine understanding this is the other option. We often think that kids can't make those choices. And unfortunately, we ultimately do as parents have to make all the choices for them. We ultimately always ends with us. Mm -hmm. Giving kids a choice where we can and giving them as much information as possible is actually going to help them to feel empowered in what is a very disempowering experience. I just want to applaud you for how you were able to support your son, include him. And you made a great point, Erin. We don't give kids enough credit. They're a lot smarter than we think they are. And they they deserve, especially in those situations where what they're going through is going to impact their whole life. They deserve to know as best as they can understand about what's going on to be included in those decisions in the best way that they can. And I just really like the way that you did that with your son from the beginning. But the more we talk, Aaron, the more you help me to further realize how important these conversations are. So I really hope that people listening are taking away from this conversation. All of those things that you mentioned is very complex, very complex. And again, I just can't thank you enough, Aaron, for sharing your story. One thing you touched on too was parents don't really have the ability to decline treatment. You talked about foster care. And so I can only imagine how hard that is for parents that just don't want their kids to go through that treatment, but in a sense, they're forced to. And I've heard those stories. Are there any lawyers to help those parents? Not that I know of. It's not something that we talked about in the medical world, and it's not something that is ever really truly acknowledged out loud. I remember the moment where I realized myself that I was being tracked by the social work system and that we had been flagged because it was the first week. They knew that I had this treatment. They knew I was furious. I found out in the first conversation with the doctor that they were using the same drugs that they had used 21 years earlier that had disabled my body. I did not hide my feelings about that. I did not hide my disdain or my despair about the fact that they were still using these drugs and that I knew that what I was doing was going to be assigning my son up to be disabled, potentially. He would potentially be also saved, but he would also be disabled. And there was a lot of grief and a lot of despair that happened around that. And because I was honest about it, I was flagged in the system. And I remember the moment where the social worker had sidled up to me. And I thought that this was a supportive conversation, that this social worker was just there to help me through a hard time. And she asked a question about something. She asked a question about whether or not we were going to be doing treatment. And I said, well, of course, we're going to do treatment. There really aren't any other options, are there? She said, oh, thank God. And she made a note on her file. And I looked at her and realized they had been trying to come up with a plan of what would happen and where my kid would go and what would happen if I said no. It was a little bit of a collapse in my world of realizing that in that moment, I hadn't had the allies I thought I had. I didn't have the people. I had gone into this hospital that had treated me. These were doctors and nurses that had treated me 20 years earlier, some of them. And here they were behind closed doors, having conversations about whether or not my child had to go into social services. So I don't actually know that there are a lot of options. I know in Canada, there have been some legal battles fought. Generally, it's only on religious standpoint that you can find a way, a loophole to get around this kind of 
treatment. And I do know of an Indigenous child whose family did fight for their right to not have the treatment. In this story, they won their battle. She did relapse. She ended up traveling to the States to get treatment and she ended up passing away later. But it's one example of these situations are very complicated. This legal battle that this family had was a couple of years long while their child was going through this. So that's one of the other things that comes into question is like, what are the spoons that you have? How much energy do you have to have this battle while this crisis is happening? And really, are there other options? And oftentimes, what we're finding is there are not other options. And that's why I am so passionate about constantly asking for the public to pay attention to how much more funding we need and better treatments, because it's the treatment that mm-hmm. is the issue. The toxicity of the treatment is the problem. And with better treatments, these situations, these completely unthinkable situations wouldn't actually be necessary to be trying to navigate. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm fighting for is how can we set up a world that doesn't actually require yeah. these kind of unthinkable situations to be chosen, to have to make the choice to say yes to this kind of treatment. There aren't words for how difficult it is, especially if you are someone in our family, we didn't do sugar before, we didn't do TV, we didn't do a lot of things. We were trying to do this while I had this experience of lots of drugs in my system and toxicity in my system. And I know what that did to my body. So how can we set our kids up for the most successful life possible? And here we are with forget no sugar, we're going to give you cytotoxic treatments that will cause these kinds of things. And really, there's no option but to offer a screen because your kid is strapped into a bed for days at a time. I think the support is not just about legal support. But in this kind of situation, if you're that kind of family, if you're that family who's found themselves in this situation, and no matter what, you need support in this kind of situation. But if you're that family where this diagnosis not only turns your world on its head because your kid is sick, but now every understanding that you have of how you wanted to parent your child is now changing. Every single choice you've made around what foods they should eat, how they should spend their time, all of those things are now completely upended. Get yourself support. Get yourself a parent support, a parent coach, You're not necessarily going to find it in the medical system. You might have to look outside of that because it's not often that within those social work systems or therapeutic systems in the child and cancer world, they can understand the level of grief that happens there. But get yourself some support to talk about how much you're having to let go of and release Mm -hmm. because it's a lot. One of the things I wrote at the very beginning about my own son was I have to let go of the life I thought he was going to have. And I have to let go of the child I thought he was going to be because from now on, everything is different. And that is a grief process that no matter what happens to your child, if your child survives, which is always the hope, you still have to let go of everything you imagined would be true for them. That level of grief is not something we talk about. And there isn't a lot of support around it. So if you're in that situation, find yourself some support to talk about that because it's an essential part of being able to move forward. It's an intense thing to say. (laughs) You have shared so much information. I want to thank you for sharing it. It's intense, but it has to be talked about because it's reality for a lot of people and they don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. And 
I can't even imagine having to make that decision for my child in order to keep them alive. Those are tough decisions. They're tough decisions to make as an adult when it comes to your own treatment options and care. We could talk about this for a very long time because there's so many different things that people are not aware of. For the sake of time, Erin, we're going to end here. I would love to have you back in the future because there's still things that we could cover. I would love that. Thank you, you, Erin. If people want to connect with you, they want to get support from you when it comes to childhood cancer or other areas that you provide support, please let them know your website where they can find you. Yeah, I would love that. So you can go to orionsway.com. So O-R-I-O-N-S-W-A-Y.com. And you can find me there, book with me there. I'm always happy to support in whatever way I can. And I really am deeply passionate about supporting the whole self. So if you are at any point in the journey and you are looking for support, I'm there. Because I've been the survivor, I've been the patient, I've been the parent, and I've been in this world for 30 years. So I get that it looks multifaceted and there are multiple stages of the journey. Yeah. And you also have the caregiver perspective. Let's not forget that. I absolutely do. Yes. I have a lot of training in these (laughs) different worlds, but I do a lot of different healing modalities. So I think that's one thing I will mention is things like PTSD, I found is very well supported by things like tapping. So when I found that, I decided to get trained in that and certified in that. So I offer multiple healing modalities that have worked for me and my family because I know that experientially they've made a difference. I offer the things that I know experientially make a difference. If you're looking for that healing support, be sure to check out Erin's website to learn more about those healing modalities. And as you can see, Erin is very easy to connect with, to talk to. She's very forthcoming. So don't be afraid to reach out to her. I know she would be happy to help you. Erin, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability, for letting us into your life, really, because you've shared so much important information. And I really appreciate you for that. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. And I'm so grateful to you to allowing me to share my story and asking questions and not shying away from the hard questions, because I think that this is an important part of how we expand our understanding as a society of what this world looks like. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. It's so needed and so necessary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate that so much. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can easily find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And I have to go back and say, please share this episode. It's very important. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon. 